Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Ah, mm, the first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. It's Friday, September 26th from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. His name is 10 letters, five in the first, five in the second. Every other letter is a consonant. All the vowels are the letter E, the most common letter. Vowels that won't slow you down, don't call attention to themselves, do their job, and make the consonants stand out even more. Derek Jeter. Derek Jeter. Last night, Derek Jeter, in his last at-bat in Yankee Stadium, delivered a game-winning hit. Last swing of the bat, last swing in Yankee Stadium, Yankee walk-off win. It was the first time he had ever played a game in Yankee Stadium where the Yankees were not in playoff contention. It was, you could say, his first meaningless home game. But to the 50,000 fans who showed up, who paid, according to Tick IQ, an average of $845 each, it was far from meaningless. By the way, that's $42 million in tickets sold. Derek Jeter was criticized this year for having a salary of $12 million. The numbers never were the thing that defined Derek Jeter, though the numbers were great. It was the words, crazy, impossible to live up to, over-the-top words. You couldn't really say Derek Jeter was the best shortstop. The best, that phrase, the best, has an empirical flair. But you could say, and man, did they say it, that he did things the right way. I was tweeting yesterday, Derek Jeter once opened his car door into a bicyclist the right way. Derek Jeter once failed to remove a red shirt from the laundry and turned all of his towels pink the right way. The right way is pretty charged, but Jeter was pretty great. See, we didn't call him perfect. We didn't call him flawless. The great thing about baseball is it's mostly about failing, like life. But if you're lucky, there's a lot of it, like life. So the right way is what they said about Jeter. It's a short and memorable phrase. It's easier to conjure than what Updike wrote about Ted Williams on his last game, that he brought to the plate, quote, the intensity of competence that crowds the throat with joy. In that same essay, Updike contends that a clutch hitter is a vulgarity. Well, then I have the tonic. They also play Major League Baseball in New York. They are called the Mets. I promised my boys we'd see a game this year, and so we will tonight. Average ticket price, I'm going to guess $11. Park capacity, totally irrelevant, plenty of seats. The word for this, the third to last game of the season, the word I taught my sons, anti-penultimate. This is the anti-penultimate game, third to last. No need to debate right way, flawlessness, intensity of competence, more like inevitability of existence. Mets play the Astros. The teams are 46 and a half games out of first place. But there is only one antepenultimate game, and it is at this antepenultimate affair that you will find us. On the show today in the spiel, it's an antan twig, and lobsters will be awarded. A post-pretty impact statement, but first, mice, brains, memory, journalism. 
story in nature. No, not the woods or a prairie. Nature. The journal Nature. They always have to say this with nature. Just grabs you. Listen to this headline. Bidirectional switch of the valiance associated with a hippocampal contextual memory engram. I mean, you gotta read that, right? All right, fine. I'll acknowledge it doesn't really say much. But then there's an abstract. Unfortunately, in this case, the abstract is kind of, well, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Abstract. So this is why we rely on the popular press to tell us what stories actually mean. And they did a pretty good job this time, I think, or at least it grabbed me. Here was the headline in the Wall Street Journal. Scientists experiment with reworking memory in mice. Testing rewires circuits of brain changes bad memories to good. What I didn't even notice was that on the same day, the New York Times wrote about the same story. And I didn't notice it because it just wasn't as grabby as the Wall Street Journal's version. Using light technique, scientists find dimmer switch for memories in mice It got me to wondering how journalists cover these stories that are hard to deconstruct, but at the same time, you don't want to make them so boring that you skip them, but at the same same time, you don't want to make them so exciting that they're inaccurate. The guy who thinks about this all the time is Ben Lilly. He's the co-founder of Story Collider, which is where science and storytelling collide. Hello, Ben. Hello. So have you read uh, both Times and Wall Street Journal story and at least some of the original study? I did. Could you figure out what the original study was saying? Not on my own. Okay. Uh, So how do you figure out what scientists are trying to say? Well, there's a lot of different ways. And that's one of those annoying phrases in the kind of science story you didn't like where I'm like, actually, it's more complicated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, A lot of times they'll know the scientists because they've run into them at conferences or something and we'll talk to them there. Sometimes they'll hear about stories through the grapevines. They'll be reporting some story, and somebody will mention, hey, did you hear about these rats? And then when it comes out, they'll be ready to jump on it. Right. And when that happens, you usually see it uh, in different days. But this had the feel to me, since it was in the papers on the same day and the same day that it was announced in the journal Nature, that no one came upon it, that the journal Nature was selling big-time journalists on the importance of this story. Oh, definitely. And that's a a huge amount of the science coverage you see is that way. There's something called the embargo system. Yeah. Um, There's embargoes in a lot of fields, but in science journalism, it's a thing. So the big journals, especially science and nature, they will take the papers they think are going to make a big hit. They will send out press release. They say it's embargoed until whatever, 10 a.m. on Wednesday or whatever they pick. And they usually give people a week or so. The original idea behind it is that this gives science writers time to call the researchers, to call people for outside comment, to try and add context so that nobody's racing to get the scoop and then maybe making an inaccurate report. Why don't we do this? Could you give me a decent synopsis of what the original study showed? The one I can give you, yeah. and I'll just tell you, just to break this down, I'll tell you what I did. So yeah. I read the Wall Street Journal article and the New York Times article you sent me, and then I called a friend of mine who works on a similar stuff. Okay. And I made her send me the paper and walk through it. Yeah. And I tried reading the paper, and it's impenetrable. Yeah. Which isn't true of all papers, but right. this one was. What they did is we're getting this really crazy new view of memory, which is we used to think of memory as like a hard disk where you like write the memory down and then it's there. And it turns out that's not true. What happens is memories are actually stored and then they're retrieved and then you remember it again. So once you've remembered something and then thought about it, what you remember after that is a memory of remembering the thing that happened. It's sort of why we remember things we take a picture of more than yeah. things that happen because yeah. we're remembering the memory. Yeah. 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 But, but with a you picture, you can something... keep going back to yeah, the picture. Yeah, and if you think about something every day, you'll remember it. But if you haven't thought of, thought of something for a year, well, it's hard to retrieve it. This is what's really interesting. Yeah. When you remember the memory, it gets slightly altered. What you're thinking about at that time can somehow influence it. 
And so, in fact, things you think about constantly are more likely to be wrong than things you haven't thought about in years. Okay, so what did these scientists do with mice and a light switch? So what they did is they created some memories that were negative or positive. And then what they did is they sent in a light switch. And by sending in a light into the brain, that either activates or deactivates different parts of the brain. But what they're able to do is actually shut off the emotional part of it. And so the other interesting thing about memories is that the content and the emotion are separate. And you can screw with them separately. And then all of a sudden they're happy in this situation that before they had associated a negative memory with. So I guess the Wall Street Journal took that, which seemed awesome, yeah. and reported it as or described it as rewiring circuits of brain, yep. not that inaccurate, changes bad memories to good. Yeah. It's close enough it's close. that that's justified. Yep. You think those words? All right, those were grabby. The Times, I think, played it much more cautious, mm-hmm. identified patterns of neurons activated when mice created a negative memory or a positive one. Uh, I don't know if the Times actually got there in describing what was so cool about this uh, experiment. What the Times did is it pointed out all the conditions So everything I just said is what the researchers did and what they reported. What I've left out is the bit that almost every report on science leaves out, which is how well do we know this? How good was the evidence for what they presented? How conditional is our knowledge? How likely is it that it will be overturned by the next experiment? And the thing is, all of these are super important if you're actually going to understand the state of the science. But I think a lot of ombudsmen, maybe the best of science writers, would say your job is to report the news without overstating it. Yep. I say maybe your job should be seen as report the news as excitingly without inaccurately stating it. It's probably somewhere in between, right? No, I, I, and I, I just thought the Times report was... You can't say it's inaccurate, but using light <laughs> technique, scientists find a dimmer switch for memories in mice. I don't even get the significance of that, whereas changing bad memories to good, I get the significance of that. And I also bring to it, like, just one experiment doesn't mean it's going to happen and be in stores tomorrow. Like, I kind of intuit all the to-be-sures and all the, uh, you know, here are the limitations of what we know kind well, of clauses. this is the big word. Okay, so yeah. I agree with you on the headlines. I think the Times could have picked a better headline. And yeah. I'm perfectly happy for headlines to be catchier than the article. But uh, there's a lot of talk in the science writing world right now about how much are people actually intuiting that? How much are they getting it? Yeah. Uh, you see this a lot in health reporting, right? So That's true. You see report after report, like red wine is good for you, red wine is bad for right. you. And it, this goes back and forth. But I think it's different with something that tomorrow I could change my behavior right. versus a light in a mouse. Absolutely. <laughs> and even if I get the light in a mouse thing wrong, <laughs> it's not influencing my wine intake. The concern is that sort of all science writing is done with the same rubrics and the, the same approach. And and it's it's often presented the same way, like, oh, look at this. If you drink a glass of red wine, it will make you healthier. And then the next month, oh, my God, this will kill you. You'll have a heart attack. What's interesting about that is usually the reporters are actually reporting the study correctly. Yeah. Um, they're not misstating what the researchers have done. The yeah. problem is that science doesn't really work this way. Yeah, One and you also study take, doesn't... You have, right. You have to take into account the universe beyond the report. And the report might it's, itself might be saying, hey, look what we found. You have to say, yeah, but look what everyone else found. And right. Look what the limits are. And yeah, you might be drunk on mouse wine, fer- fermented mouse milk. <laughs> um, so what about you, Ben? Where do you get your science news? Because I just get it from um, the word on the street, Twitter. <laughs> The Wall Street Journal, <laughs> men's room stalls. <laughs> um, National Geographic just set up an amazing blog network. Five people, some of the top writers, Carl Zimmer, Ed Young, Virginia Hughes, 
Nadia Drake and Brian Sweetek, and they write about a whole range of stuff. If you go there, it's called Phenomena at National Geographic, and just follow all of them Twitter. Not only will you see their writing, which is great, but just the stuff they tweet out. Like Ed, yeah. if you follow Ed Young, yeah. once a week he posts a list of his like top science writing, and it's phenomenal. Also, there's been a string recently of really great new science online magazines. Um, they're a little lower profile, but are putting out tremendous stuff on a regular basis. So um, Nautilus, which covers sort of science and human beings. Uh, Mosaic, which covers a lot of health and medical stuff. Um, Eon Magazine, A-E-O-N, which does these amazing essays about what science means in our life. Um, and if you really want to get into it, there's a there's a thing called Quanta, which is done by the Simons Foundation, and their whole goal is to be as accurate as possible. So they'd be the opposite of what you liked about the journal, but they're the ones where if you go and if they report it, that's correct. <laughs> they're the ones that yeah. are correct. Well, every, all the others I mentioned are correct, but that's that's their home. They're mission. the most correct. Yeah. They haven't issued a tweet since 1987. <laughs> that's how correct they are. Ben Lilly is co-founder of Story Collider, where science and storytelling collide. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. And now the latest development in Living Longer brought to you by Prudential Financial. Imagine you wanted to have kids, but you knew you had a good chance of passing on a serious inherited disease. Now imagine you could do something to make sure you didn't pass on your bad DNA. You'd do that, right? Of course you would. But wait, suppose the technique to help your unborn child involved using three people's DNA, yours, your spouse's, and some third person you didn't know, but whose genetic material would fix the problem. This is possible right now. But the ethics are complicated, especially when you realize these so-called three-person embryos don't just treat illness. They could also be used to create children without certain desirable traits. Yeah, we're talking about designer babies. If you'd like to read more about this and other fascinating longevity research, visit Slate.com slash Live Longer. The Living Longer Project is sponsored by Prudential. Problems. We all got problems. That's all I need right now, you and your problems. Actually, if your name happens to be Emily Yaffe, who writes the Dear Prudence column for Slate, she does want your problems because she could solve them. Well, actually, I don't know solve. She could at least address them, and then it's up to you. And this is what happened. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. First, I want to mention and welcome Emily Yaffe. Hello, Emily. Hi, Mike. So what I wanted to mention is we've done a bunch of these post-prudence impact statements, and now I think we are debuting a new form, the post-post-prudence impact statement, where we talk to someone who you gave advice to, but then there's been a development. What can you tell me about this, Emily? Well, I can't tell you. We're going to hear from the man himself. We are talking about a letter that was originally called Please No Baby Daddy. Please No Baby Daddy. Very briefly, guy writes in. He's a young guy in graduate school, madly in love with his girlfriend. They just moved in together. He's going to ask her to marry him at some point. Uh, He went to a party by himself and had too much to drink and ended up uh, in bed with someone he didn't plan to do anything with. In fact, he didn't complete the act, shall we say. But a few weeks afterward, he heard from her, and he was one of three candidates as father of her baby. So he was writing to me about what to do. Does he tell his girlfriend? She had said at the beginning, if you ever cheat on me, we're done. Um, But he, he was just sweating bullets over 
what was going to happen and how it would play out. Right. So what was our first? Remind me. What well, was our I first told him, right. I, I said, look, uh, usually I take the line a one-time much-regretted uh, dalliance you can keep to yourself. Uh, this thing had taken on a life of its own. Literally? I, yeah. Uh, I just said this was too out of control, and he needed to tell her. He also said that a bunch of his friends knew about this. I said, just just tell her. All right. We talked to him. He said, did not take your advice. Ooh. Baby was born, as we expected. He wasn't the father. Whew. Everything's fine. He's never going to say a word, and he's gone on happily with his life, except now we've heard from him. Right. So it's all off the hook. Everything, all's well that ends well. But did it end is the question. Well, joining us now is please no baby daddy, or shall I say, please more baby daddy. Hello. Hello. How you doing? How you doing? I'm good. No, I mean that uh, in a more specific, less general way. How are you doing? Doing doing well. Um I reached back out because the, the new development was uh, last month. She actually did find out um, and just kind of going to give you guys a story or, or whatever you want to know about kind of the fallout and what happened next. Oh, yeah. And how how did she find out? We were actually on vacation uh, visiting some friends uh, in the south, having kind of a beach vacation. Someone, someone somewhere, I guess, has leaked it out to, to a friend of a friend of a friend who decided they would send her an anonymous email about it. And so we were actually in the car with our friends heading to the beach. Um, had been on the road about a half hour and she was going through her emails on her phone and this one happened to pop up. And it basically was a one paragraph thing, just explaining the entire situation from start to finish. Um, she started to have a panic attack in the car and was like freaking out and totally blindsided. And so we pulled over and had kind of the initial screaming match, although I, I wasn't really talking, more her screaming. She composed herself. Her and a couple of the girls kind of went back in the car and were talking, and I kind of waited outside. We just kind of stayed separated for a while, not talking. She actually came back later that night. We had probably a four or five-hour talk just kind of saying, you know, I don't know where we're going to go from here, um, but we you know, obviously need to figure some things out, at which point I, I basically just came totally clean, gave her every detail she wanted to know. Not to spoil the ending, but kind of talked several more days, and then kind of once we got home, um, had some more talks. Decided to at least give it a try mm-hmm. and stay together. So we've kind of been going from there. Emily, your okay. reaction? I hate to say I told I won't say it, but I warned you in this case, please no baby daddy. The circle of knowledge was way too big. People knew... And you were counting on your good friends keeping this from her. Someone quite maliciously. That's really an awful thing to do. But that's the kind of stuff that happens. So that's why in cases like this, I advise the wrongdoer, get ahead of it. You be the one to tell yourself. On the other hand, you have given advice like, hey, it might make you feel better to get it off your chest. But if no one knows, just let it lie. But in this specific case, Emily, it's just that so many people knew. Right. As you said, please, uh, no baby daddy. A lot of people knew, right? There was probably a group of about five or six of my good friends that knew. And I think a couple had told girlfriends and stuff like that. You know, Looking back, I wish I had taken your advice initially because I think it would have been a lot more respectable and you know, probably 
easier to handle um, if I had told her earlier on. I had hoped, uh, please no baby daddy, that if you told your girlfriend, you said she had laid down this marker, if you ever cheat on me, we're done. I'd, I said most people don't say, you can cheat on me up to 10 times after that we're done. So I had hoped that given the whole entirety of your relationship, that this could just be put in perspective and put away. So are you two, two still living together? Are you in some kind of suspension, or you feel you're going to be okay? Still together, still living together. We're talking about it less and less. You know, initially, every day or two, you know, we kind of talk about some certain aspect of it. And, you know, obviously there's a lot of stuff I've had to do to kind of prove myself, and I think she's working on, too, trying not to harbor that resentment, which, you know, obviously there's going to be some there for a while, I think. Um, but trying not to make it where, you know, years from now, she still has some sort of, you know, resentment or some sort of, you know, unequal kind of emotional feelings toward me or something like that. So we're trying to work on that and just see how that goes. Well, that sounds really smart, and I hope you two can do it. Because the worst thing that happens is that this becomes this kind of poison and eats away, and the person who was cheated on can never get over it. It's really a minor thing. Sure, it hurts. But at some point, if you're going to be together, she has to let it go and uh, just move on. And, it, you know, you can't be beaten around the head about it. It happened. It didn't turn out to have any big effect on your life. And actually, I think, and maybe you can use this, there's a positive to this because... It almost kind of uh, infidelity proved you. You were not happy with yourself. You felt miserable. You were guilty. It was not something you thought, oh, this is good. I can get something on the side, and she doesn't know. And she kind of knows you do not want to risk your relationship, and you truly deeply regret it, and that's valuable. Exactly. You were caught smoking behind the barn, and your dad made you smoke the whole pack at once, and that put you off smoking forever. Something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, Good analogy, Mike. Great. I nailed that one. Uh, Sorry, one like kind of personal reflection is, you know, I, I went through school. I was always kind of considered like a good kid, you know, by my parents. Of course, everyone's parents think that, but like never got into a lot of trouble, kind of always did the right thing for the most part. I mean, this was kind of my biggest mortal sin I probably ever really had. So it was actually kind of good in a way, I think, because it helped me realize that all people kind of have the capability of doing awful things, including myself. And that there really is thinking that needs to be done, actions that you have to be accountable for, and that if you're not focusing on doing the right thing and focusing on, you know, not hurting the people that you love and stuff like that, that you can slip up. So it's kind of helped me learn to focus that a little bit more and not just kind of float through life hoping to do good. That's beautiful. I love that. And that is a stirring and lovely endorsement of infidelity. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) That was nice. I thought it was great. It was it, good. It is true. People who are always good. Come on, you're human. Hey, listen, please no baby daddy. I want to thank you for writing into Emily the first time, taking our call the first time, updating us again. You know, I feel like we've been through a lot with you. And if you ever have kids, Emily and Mike are really lovely names. <laughs> 
Sounds good. <laughs> thanks, man. You take thank care. Thank you so yeah, much. Thanks a lot. Bye. Hope it all goes well. Pretty, uh, i.e. Emily Afi, I want to thank you for another, actually a debut post-post-Prudy yes. Impact Statement. That was excellent. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel. It's an Antan Twig, our once-every-three-week housekeeping, updating, knife-sharpening, score-settling, lobster-awarding, life-affirming, head-scratching tradition. And a milestone. Yesterday was just episode 100. There it was, clearly marked, episode 100. With a caveat. We had two episode 25s. As it happened, our bookkeeper had just taken a plum job with AIG. His head wasn't in the game. And so episode 25 was repeated twice. The episode labeled 100 was actually the 101st time we did one of these shows. So if yesterday was episode 100, today we have two choices. We could call this our 101st birthday, like when you turn 34, it's actually your 35th year on earth. Or we could just skip an episode to even things out. So if we had two episode 25s, maybe no episode 102 on Monday. Maybe we'll go right to episode 103. You're gonna have to download on Monday to see what we decide. So this brings up a main purpose of the Antan Twig, mistakes, corrections, errata. We all make mistakes. Like when I mentioned the Milwaukee Bucks mascot was Bongo. It's not. It's Bango. And bingo, I got called on the bungle. My bad. I may have mentioned that the Adirondack Mountains were where we were when we were really in the Catskills. Actually, that happened. Two geographically unrelated ranges, as unrelated as haikus are to rhyme. Most people will tell you that haiku adheres to a specific syllable count, but no one will say haikus should rhyme, except me. I did. It was a mistake. Now, about that thing of not adhering to a rhyme scheme, let me tell you about that. There are those who say that beauty defies structure. Defines it, I say. Booyah! See? See how it was sublime until I said booyah? Booyah wrecked it. Why? Syllables. But we all make mistakes. We're all prone to errata. In fact, last week I interviewed the police's Stuart Copeland, and he told me it didn't make the final cut in what you heard, but he told me that the police's third album, I think it was, was so rushed and they made so many mistakes that they had to reissue a longer version in Europe, which acknowledged all the errors. It could still be bought in secondhand markets. It's called Zenyata Mandata Errata. I personally never have heard Zenyata Mandata Arata, but I was forwarded a spreadsheet with all the figures and charts pertaining to it, and that spreadsheet I've labeled on my computer, and I call that Zenyata Mandata Arata Data. But I actually dropped that file because I have a Zenyata Mandata Arata Data Stigmata. But I'm not alone. There are others like me. In fact, we'll be participating in a massive nautical event to raise awareness of our condition. We call it the Zenyata Mandata Arata Dada Regatta. And it's not just for humans. There's also a Zenyata Mandata Arata Dada Otter Regatta. We'd like to get some young girls involved with this, and that's why we're sponsoring the Bring Your Zenyata Mandata Arata Dada Regatta Daughter to Work Day. Oh, you like that last one, huh? And you want to honor it with a musical work of three or four movements of contrasting form. So you're saying a Zenyata Mandata Arata Dada Regatta Daughter Sonata? Wait, what? Actually, a different kind of music? A work intended for chorus and orchestra based on religious text? A Zenyata Mandata Arata Dada Regatta Daughter Not a Sonata But a Cantata? Cooked with eggs? A Zenyata Mandata Arata Dada Regatta Daughter Not a Sonata But a Cantata Frittata? 
Is that what you want? Is that what you're saying? No, no, it's not. In fact, you wish to issue a religious decree against it? You're saying you're calling for a Zenyata Mandata, Arata, Dada, Regatta, Daughter, Sonata, Cantata, Frittata, Fatwa? Well, in that case, I think you ought to take your Zenyata Mandata, Arata, Dada, Regatta, Daughter, Sonata, Cantata, Frittata, Fatwa, throw it in the Rio de Plata because you are a persona non grata. New thought. If a persona non grata is an unwelcome person, shouldn't a cheesy person be a persona au gratin? Which reminds me of potato au gratin, which reminds me of lobster thermidor, which brings me to the lobster. Every three weeks, we award a listener, an interactor, a Facebook user who delights us or suggests a topic or corrects, gently corrects an error but brings us to a special place. So our first runner-up, you could say our antepenultimate lobster, is Dave Anderson. He's the dude who discovered there were two episode 25s. And as fitting with someone who discovered two episode 25s, he emailed us twice about it. So thanks, Dave. Then there's Rolf Jacobson. Rolf Jacobson was the guy who suggested we do a vexillology corner about the Union Jack. Good suggestion, Rolf. We did it. And you were almost named the Lobstar because of it. But the guy who won the actual Lobstar, there's an interesting family connection here, is Dan Blondell. Dan Blondell was the guy who pointed us to a Mother Jones column where they talked about an error in the New York Times. We picked up on that. It was Dick Cheney being misidentified as President Cheney instead of Vice President. And Mother Jones sought to clarify with these words, this is funny because many people believe that Cheney wielded an unprecedented level of influence over former President George W. Bush. Yeah, that is funny. The way they explain that, that's just so funny. And here's the familial connection. Dan Blondell's fiance. An actual Red Lobster Lobstar. Red Lobster has this tradition of a, a sort of a customer of the week, and they put the customer on their web page. It's a great idea. If we hadn't thought of it first, we'd totally credit them. Editors note, they thought of it first. That's the Antan Twig, and you guys are the Lobstars. Thanks to all the Lobstars, all the Gist listeners. We can't do it without you. And that's it for today's show. But in two weeks, there will be live shows. One is in L.A. on October 8th. It is the Slate Culture Fest. And one is in New York, specifically the Brooklyn part of New York. Also on Tuesday, October 8th, it is the Slate Sports Podcast. Hang up and listen. I will be at the one in Brooklyn. It's the Galapagos Art Space. The L.A. one on the same day, October 8th, is at the Belasco Theater. Go to slate.com slash live for all the information about both and other upcoming shows. There's also some way to get a free drink at the Culture One. At the Sports One, maybe we'll give you a free set of downs. Andrea Salenzi is the producer of The Gist. She almost didn't get here. She took the craziest flight, Calcutta through Jakarta via Granada by way of Nevada. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcast, is pretty smart. Though he didn't stay in a Holiday Inn last night, he did once stay in the Osaka Ramada. You can listen in SoundCloud or go to iTunes. We are also on Yo. You get the app. You subscribe to Podcast. When the show is ready, we'll Yo you. Or we could email you. To sign up for that service, go to slate.com slash gist email. Our Facebook page, a lot of the Lobstars alert us via Facebook, is facebook.com slash slate gist. Our Twitter feed is slate gist. And you can email the gist at slate.com. Sorry for the weird, often nonsensical structure of things, but I do believe in something of a dada schemata. And I know when I say, thanks for listening, you're thinking, Donata. Hello, Gist listeners. Felix Salmon here from the Slate Money podcast, where this week we welcome special guest panelist Kai Rizdal of Marketplace. 
I'll ask him why a public radio demigod would sully his reputation by appearing on a podcast. We'll also talk about efficient markets and bonds and things like that. But it's fun. Listen to it. Search for Slate Money in iTunes or visit slate.com slash podcasts.